We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning, Emmaus. As always, it's a joy and honor and privilege to be with you all this morning to open the word before you. Obviously, this morning has a touch of extra sweetness to it, so it's a joy to be here this morning. On January 4th, 2015, Emmaus Church had our very first public gathering on a Sunday morning. We had met a few times as a core team in the year leading up to that point, but that Sunday morning, January 4th, 2015, a number of us signed our church covenant and officially began Emmaus Church. There were three pastors back then, Pastor Joshua Hedger, Pastor Kevin Stratton, and myself. The other two pastors somehow worked it out where each of them had children the week leading up to our first service. So because of two-thirds of our pastors were in the hospital with adorable newborns, just a day apart from one another, I had the tremendous honor of preaching the very first sermon at Emmaus Church. That morning, seven years ago now, we were starting the book of Ephesians. A few of you were in the room that morning. You remember those early days in Parkville with that lovely train just blaring its horn every five seconds during the sermon. That morning, starting the book of Ephesians, I said that going through the book of Ephesians, what we wanted to do was examine a diamond. We we talked about holding the diamond that is Jesus Christ up and turning it through each chapter of Ephesians to examine the glory that is Jesus Christ. Well, by my count, there have been 362 Sundays since that Sunday. There have been 362 grace-filled, gospel-laced Sundays. I tell that story not for mere nostalgia's sake, though it is nostalgic, but to say something very important. From Emmaus' first sermon to my last sermon today, and God help us to the very last sermon preached in this church We've really had one major theme. Behold Jesus. Behold Jesus. 362 times from different parts of the scripture, from different men, this message. Behold the triune God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what I want to leave you with today, Emmaus. The call to behold Jesus. A farewell sermon is not an easy thing to write. Beyond the avalanche of emotions that I felt while thinking about leaving this body, you also have to deal with what's the final thing I want to tell them. There is, of course, nothing I'd want to tell you more 
than beseeching you to behold this man, Jesus Christ. So this sermon will not be a five steps to make your life better kind of a sermon. It will not have many application points. But using 2 Corinthians 3, we will work our way towards that great charge of beholding Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's pray and jump in to 2 Corinthians 3. God, we need you today, like we need you every day. You are tremendously good to us. And Lord, when we are with our friends, you are there. And when we move to a state where we barely know anyone, you are there. God, we could make our bed in the depths of Sheol, and you are there. We could climb to the highest heavens and you are there. Well, this morning, I take comfort in your presence. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. As one body and one voice, we thank you for your life, death, your resurrection, and your ascension, God. And I pray that this morning you would make it real to us. There are people in a lot of different places of life this morning. There are cynics. There are Skeptics, there are those rejoicing, there are those mourning, and Jesus, would you reveal yourself to all of those and everyone in between? God, let us taste your goodness this morning. And God, with your goodness in our mouths, may we praise you. May we behold you until we see you and see you forevermore. It's in Jesus' mighty, mighty name we pray. 2 Corinthians 3. Verses 17, or verses 7 through 18. I'll read them real quick. Now, if the ministry of death carved on carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it. Must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what was once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. In this passage, 
Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he is making a very important comparison. He is comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. He makes this comparison by way of using an Old Testament story, Moses and the veiled face. And he compares this wonderful scene with Moses to the glory of the New Covenant. So let's look at what he says first about the Old Covenant. He brings to the reader's mind that awesome scene. And I use that word in the literal sense, causing awe. That awesome scene with Moses at Mount Sinai. You can read about it in Exodus. Moses ascends Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And as the Lord and Mount Sinai, or as the Lord and Moses are atop that mountain, Mount Sinai, something remarkable happens. Moses converses with the Lord, and at one point in their conversation, Moses asks what I think is one of the most audacious questions in all of Scripture. Moses dares ask of the Lord, let me see your glory. That's what Moses asks him. Let me see your glory. And God says, Moses, because you have found favor in my sight, I will let you see my glory. However, there is a cleft in the rock over there. You need to hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand on you, and then I'm going to pass by. When I pass by, I'm going to remove my hand. You can come out from the cleft of the rock and see my back. Because if you were to see my face or behold my glory and it's full, you will surely die. So Moses has to take comfort in the cleft of the rock with the hand of the Lord comforting him until the glory of God passes by. Once the glory of God passes by, Moses comes out and can look, get a glimpse at his back. Now, church, don't miss this little small aside here. This little story in Exodus, I think it's Exodus 33, should totally recalibrate your view of God. I'm a little worried that some of us have a view of God where we just view him as a mightier and bigger version of ourselves. Right? Like we have wisdom, but he has all wisdom. We have power, but he has all power. No, that is not how we should view God. God is altogether different than you. There is no bigger and mightier version of you such that if I were to see it, I would die. The glory of the Lord is altogether different. God's grandeur is simply incomprehensible. So Moses asks this remarkable question, can I see your glory? Partakes in this remarkable experience, seeing a glimpse of the Lord's back, but that's not where the wonder of the story ends. Moses then comes down Mount Sinai back to the people of Israel. You remember what happens? When he comes back to the people of Israel, after receiving the law from God and the covenant that they were supposed to obey, when Moses comes down the mountain and the people see him, they are terrified. The people are terrified to look at Moses. Why? The scripture tells us that they are terrified because Moses' face is literally glowing. Right? It's glowing from his encounter with the Lord. The people are so terrified of Moses that they made him put a veil over his face. So they didn't see the glowing face anymore. 
They couldn't even listen to the instruction of the Ten Commandments nor the Old Covenant because they were terrified of Moses' glowing face. So he puts a veil over it. So God's glory is so magnificent that if you saw it directly, you would not even live. And it's so glorious that even to get to partake in a glimpse of it will so transform you that others will not be able to properly look at you. This is a glorious God. And this is the backstory that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. Moses' encounter and glowing face on Mount Sinai is the backstory to 2 Corinthians. So keep that backstory in mind as we look at the text again. Paul is saying if you think that was glorious, wait until you understand the new covenant. If you thought the old covenant was glorious and that whole scene was glorious, you haven't heard the half of it. Look back at verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, which is what Paul refers to the law as, carved in stone, the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So he's telling you, the law is being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, have even more glory? Paul calls the covenant at Sinai the ministry of death. That's a bold statement. But he can do this because he knows that the covenant at Sinai will bring death to those who try to fulfill it in their own flesh. Emmaus, you've heard this time and time and time again, but no one has ever lived who has been good enough to earn their own righteousness before God. No one, not you, not me, not our greatest heroes, not our greatest heroes' greatest heroes. No one who has ever lived can earn their righteousness by the law, for it is a ministry of death. The law will not save you. It will not save a single person. On that great day of judgment, if you are trying to be a good enough person to see God, you will die. So Paul asks, if that which is coming to an end was glorious, how much more glorious will be the covenant that has no end? He continues, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, which is what the law does, right? It condemns us. The law doesn't have the power to save but the law does have the power to condemn. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. So then let's put Paul's comparison together. Let's zoom out for a second and see what he's saying about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and bring them together. Paul is saying in the Old Covenant, we have three things. One, the ministry of death. Two, that leads to our condemnation. Three, that will come to an end. The ministry of death that leads to our condemnation and is coming to an end. That's what he says about the Old Covenant. What about the new covenant? Paul says that we have in the new covenant of Jesus the spirit of life, which leads to our righteousness. 
and will last forever and ever. So the ministry of death that leads to our condemnation, which will come to an end, compared to the spirit of life, which leads to our righteousness and will last forever and ever. And so we don't just forget what the new covenant is. This is what we read about in Jeremiah 31 when God clearly told us to put the law on our hearts, put the 600 plus something laws of the Old Testament on our hearts, but we could not do it. And so in Jeremiah 31, we get a glimpse of the new covenant which says God will be the one to put the law on your hearts. God will take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. And guess what? He does this in the gospel work of Jesus Christ and through the ministry of the Spirit. This is the new covenant. And here's the thing. The old covenant was not bad. The old covenant is not bad. God gave the covenant. God does not give bad gifts to his children. He's the father of lights who gives good gifts. The old covenant was not bad. It was a near, it was a mirror that demonstrated our wickedness. The covenant did not have wickedness, but the covenant showed us our wickedness. Now let's look at verses 12 through 18. The kind of life that the new covenant leads to. Verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, the hope that is not to fulfill the law, the hope is not to fulfill the demands that the Lord has given us, but we have a hope where the, Lord, the law of the Lord has been fulfilled on our behalf in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Since we have such a hope, the hope of the new covenant, we are very bold. We are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. We are not like these folks, brothers and sisters. We are very bold. Not with the veil over our eyes. But hear me, if you do not trust in Jesus and know in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you right now are wearing a veil over your eyes. You don't see it, but it's there. You don't see it, but you see everything through it. You have a veil over your eyes. But those who have turned to the Lord where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the veil is removed. Here's, here's where we come to the most beautiful part of this passage and the thing I want to leave you with as I leave from being your pastor. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, all meaning all Christians, we Christians, those who have been united to Christ by faith, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Don't miss the juxtaposition that's happening here. Moses on Mount Sinai couldn't even get a glimpse of the Lord without fear of death. 
He couldn't even look at him. And now in the new covenant, we're not just recommended to behold the Lord, we're commanded, behold him. And in beholding him, in looking at the face of God in Jesus Christ, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is what, the, the, by the way, this is what the mediating ministry of Jesus will do. You, you, you want to think about how wonderful it is that Jesus makes the Trinity known when he says, I am my Father, our one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Right? You couldn't have even looked at the Father. But if you've seen the face of Jesus, you've seen him. And it's by staring into that face, you will be transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. So think about the dichotomy of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant here. Don't miss the overwhelming beauty. The Old Covenant calls you to do. Do. Be better. Be perfect. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Do. Do the works of the law. Do put on your own righteousness. Do follow the Lord in perfect obedience. But the New Covenant speaks a better word of not do, but done. It is done. Christ has fulfilled the law that you should have lived. It is done. Christ died the death that you deserved to die because of your transgression. It is done. Christ was buried on your behalf in the grave you deserved to occupy. It is done. Christ did not stay in that grave, but was resurrected, showing that he put death to death. It is done. All those united to Christ by faith will indeed rise with him in faith as he ushers us into the presence of the triune God. Our story is a story of moving from the law of sin and death in which we could not even glimpse at the Lord without drastic consequence to the gospel of life and righteousness where we are commanded, behold him. Behold the face of God in that man, Jesus Christ. And when you do, you better not wear a veil. Look directly into his eyes. The second person of the Trinity, our treasure of treasure, Jesus Christ the righteous. And as you behold the glory of God, you will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. If you want to look like Jesus, if you want to sound like Jesus, if you want to love like Jesus, then behold him. Behold him. Spend your life looking at him. Contemplate him. Find him in your scriptures. And look, if you say, I, try, I read this thing. I don't see him everywhere. Well, keep looking. Keep looking until you see him. Look for him in nature. Find him working in our world. Find him amongst the lowly and the humble. Find him amongst the bruised and the broken. Find him. And once your mind's eye has found him, do not let go. Do not let go. Stare at him until you look like him. I wanted to save a good amount of time in my sermon for my pastoral charges. Because it's my last time I get to do this. So with this behold him in mind, I want to actually turn to the pastoral charges. And my pastoral charges should probably not be surprising to you. It's probably going to be behold him. However, I do want to do something unique with this week's pastoral charge. 
I want to address not two people in the room, but three people in the room. First, I want to address any non-believers who may be in the room who don't trust Jesus as their only hope of righteousness. Second, I want to address the believers that make up Emmaus Church. And third, I want to do something a bit unique, and I want to give a pastoral charge to the pastors as well. First, to anyone in the room who does not trust in Jesus as your only hope of righteousness and salvation by faith, you must be warned. You must be warned from this pulpit. You are still living under the ministry of death and in the ministry of condemnation. You will not receive the reward of heaven and the prize of Jesus Christ the righteous if you still have the veil over your face. In your own ability and flesh, you will do nothing but fall short of the glory of God. You need another to perfectly fulfill the law of God on your behalf. You cannot do it alone. You need another to be your high priest before God. You will not be that alone. You need another to purchase your resurrection for you are not rich enough to buy it alone. The good news for you is that Jesus is that man. And the good news for you is today that many, many Many people in this room would love to tell you about our deepest love and our greatest treasure, Jesus Christ. Today is the day to move from death to life. Today is the day to move from the law of condemnation to the spirit of righteousness. Today is the day to stop trying to save yourself and come to the only one who can save you. Trust in him. You do not need to come to the front of the room. You need not say some special prayer. You need not do anything but simply behold Him and trust Him to do what only He can do. To the saints of Emmaus Church, My final charge to you as your pastor is to behold the triune God in the face of Jesus Christ. In doing so, may you be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Behold him. Behold him who is of the same substance as the Father and the one who is eternally generated from the simple essence of of the Father. Behold him, through whom everything was made, and to whom all things are going. Behold him, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant. Behold him, who was infinite, and yet became an infant, that he might make all wrongs right, and who, like the hound of heaven he is, come after you in your helpless estate. Behold him who upholds the universe by the word of his power and even in this very moment is sovereignly holding together the molecules that make up your body as you listen to the words coming out of my mouth. 
Behold him who is from the tribe of David and from the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek who has established a better and new covenant in his blood. Behold him who in his earthly life and in his human nature fully fulfilled the law of the Lord. Behold him who did not keep that reward of his perfect righteousness for himself, but has lavished you in grace upon grace and dispenses with your sinful grave clothes and puts around your neck his robes of righteousness. Behold him who reorients our beauty before our eyes and shows us the glorious way of the upside down world and the upside down kingdom in which the first shall be last and it's the meek who will inherit the earth. Behold him who is our portion and our reward, who has satisfied our deepest longings for meaning and value, and who has drawn our lines in pleasant places. Behold him who hung on that tree on Mount Calvary, whose head bore the crowns. Behold him who was mocked as the king of the Jews, and whose flesh was torn by those who would not receive him. Behold him who was laid in the ground as if the principalities of darkness could beat him. Behold him who is the serpent crusher and whose heel is home to a bruise that is the sign of your everlasting security. Behold him who trampled over death and sin and shame and guilt and self-hatred and pain and grief and who speaks a better word than the feedback loop of self-condemnation you feel in your soul. Behold him who is now sitting on his throne and who says with cosmic consequences, it is finished as redemption has been secured. Behold him who makes known the Trinity to us, the wonder of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all of one essence in three persons. Behold him who is transcendent enough to know where each star hangs in the sky, but is eminent enough to know the numbers of feathers of the wings on every sparrow. Behold him who is one day coming to wipe away every tear, who will make all sad things untrue, who will establish justice and peace in the kingdom of God forever and evermore. Behold him. Emmaus, behold your Christ. He is your king. He is the head of every church, including this one. And he always will be. You need not fear pastors leaving and coming because Christ is the true over-shepherd of this church. He is good. He is true. He is beautiful. And he is a good brother to us in whom we can trust on and on whose merit we will call on on that last day. Emmaus, my only charge to you, behold him. Finally, to the pastors of Emmaus Church, to the men who will be pastors of Emmaus Church. May you with unflinching consistently, un- unflinching consistency point these dear saints to that man, Jesus Christ. When their eyes become convinced that there is something more valuable to behold than the triune God, may you with the power of the gospel and the ministry of the word remind them that everything else is a lesser love. May you grow ever faithful in showing that all the world has to offer is a mud puddle compared to the ocean of glory in God. When your arms inevitably come weary of pointing at Jesus, when you're tempted to put it down, may you minister to one another and may the Spirit minister to you such that your weary arm is lifted and you continue pointing away as if there's no other work in the world for you. 
may you continue to pastor these people as well as you have pastored me and my family. May the glorious task of leading Emmaus Church across the Jordan River into the Promised Land be the sweetest task of your life. On those days when all seems to be collapsing around you, pastors, may the inner voice of self-condemnation find its death, and may you believe the better word of the gospel. And in the gospel, may you straighten your spine and shake off your weak knees and clear your voice and continue proclaiming the glories of God so long as he gives you breath. Allow me to finish my sermon and my time as your pastor with just a quick thank you. Emmaus, thank you. Thank you for being my covenant home for these last seven years. Thank you for answering the call, am I my brother's keeper, with an emphatic yes for me and my family. Thank you for watching over my soul and my family's soul in covenant community. Thank you for all of the hours we spent together, all of the times you allowed me to open the word from this pulpit. All of the times I spent in your living room and the hours you spent in mine. All the time we spent together crying, including this moment, laughing and weeping and rejoicing together. Thank you for loving my wife and daughter. Thank you for caring for us and being one of the sweetest bodies of believers we will ever know. Thank you for being the first church that I got to pastor in my ministry. Thank you for taking the chance on a young and inexperienced pastor knowing that I would inevitably make mistakes. And thank you for your grace and your forgiveness when I did make those mistakes. And most importantly, thank you for walking hand in hand with me as we march toward that golden shore beyond the horizon. Thank you for the cons- consistently reminding me to behold Jesus as the greatest treasure of my life and to cherish his gospel. Thank you, Emmaus. This season with you has been one of the sweetest times of Kristen and I's life. And you'll always be dear to us. Our entire family loves Jesus and looks a little more like him because of the years we got to spend with you. We love you, Emmaus. Thank you. Let me pray. God, I do thank you. What I see in this room are trophies of your grace. And Lord, in the sovereign thousand gears of grace you have spinning. You allowed me to spend a portion of my life with these brothers and sisters. And now always thank you for that. Thank you for the gift of being their pastor. Thank you for the gift of having these members. Lord, may they behold Jesus until their last day when their beholding and faith becomes actual sight and they behold you face to face. May you keep them safe and not let one of them die on the banks of promised land, but may all of them cross the Jordan into your perfect presence. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Every week, we end with communion, which is a fitting thing to end with because we want to behold God and we can behold him at the table. And so if you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Christ, and you trust in Him alone for your salvation, we invite you to come. You'll get some hand sanitizer over here. 
and you'll get uh, your bread and juice over here. If you are a non-believer, we invite you not to come and take bread and juice, but take Jesus. Right? We want no hollow religious activity here. And if you don't believe in Jesus, coming and partaking would be a hollow religious activity. But for those who find in Christ their greatest treasure and deepest joy, may you come take. Emmaus, I love you. Thank you for letting me be your pastor. Come and take. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmaus KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Emmaus KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.